In church, if you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue this Disciple Now weekend in this service in our series in the Beatitudes, our series uh, more in depth in the Sermon on the Mount. It has been a great weekend for over 300 high school, middle school students. We've had hundreds of volunteers from host homes to chaperones to many that were facilitating the projects yesterday for Kids Connection and the giving and receiving and the organizing of, of goods that are going to go into our community of clothes and other items that were donated. And so many of you in this room, if not all of you in this room, have played a role in Disciple Now as you've been in prayer for this weekend. Many of you have made even more, even intentional roles as you have had a, uh, individuals that you've been praying very specifically for. And so I've been encouraged by Lakeshore Worship, Chris and Caroline and Trenton, who were before you, who've led uh, throughout this weekend along with their band. And it has been a good weekend where God's Word has uh, connected to the hearts of our students. And so we pray for fruit to come, not only this weekend, but in the days, weeks, years, and lifetime ahead for these students. Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 reads, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. If, if you happen to be on a search team, let, let's just say hypothetically for a new CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a presidential search for a university position or even let's just imagine for a new coach and you were to draw out the personality profile that was just absolutely essential for that new leader what he or she would exemplify, the characteristics that would be evident in them, I would imagine that very few of us in our top 10 characteristics would have meekness on that list. I, I, I would imagine that it would be rare for any of us in our culture to value the role of meekness in one's personality. Meekness is something that oftentimes in our culture we want our children to get over, to grow out of. We oftentimes think of meekness as a synonym for weakness. We want our children or our grandchildren to grow out of their shyness, which oftentimes we equate as meekness, and to stand on their what? On their two feet as men and women who are strong, Men and women of, of worth, and oftentimes we think of meekness and we think of it as, as someone who is a coward or someone who is a pushover, someone who doesn't, who's not able to articulate carefully who they are and what they believe. And I would tell you, you are wrong, I am wrong, we are wrong when we equate meekness with weakness because one of the characteristics of our Savior himself was that Jesus was one who exemplified this beatitude. He is one who exemplifies and defines meekness for your life and my life. Well, we don't live in a world where meekness is valued. And guess what? Jesus didn't live in a world where meekness was valued. One of the 
problems that we often have when we talk about a word like meekness is that we don't have a full range of the meaning of that word, so we import meanings to us and and the worst of those meanings. And so I think it's helpful for us as we think about this beatitude in a new and a fresh way, I think it's helpful for us to see first and foremost the role of meekness in the life of a believer. The role of meekness in the life of of a believer. You see, for me and for you that are here today, it is important for us to understand that meekness is an important characteristic of a follower of God. In our culture, oftentimes the antonyms, not the synonyms, but the very opposite of meekness is what we value in our culture. It's what we look for in leaders. We say blessed are the aggressive, blessed are the assertive, blessed are the proud, blessed are the bold, blessed are the brash, blessed are the self-confident and the self-assured. And Jesus says blessed are the meek. I've told you that the Beatitudes turn upside down our cultural expectations of what it oftentimes means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so it is, even these words speak to us in ways that we need to listen clearly. There is problems with our definition of meekness. You need to understand first and foremost that Jesus exemplifies meekness in his earthly ministry. Matthew chapter 11 reads, Come to me, in verse 28, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest in your souls. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 29, that word there for gentle is the same word that is translated meekness in Matthew chapter 5. So if you can't get your mind around meekness, think gentleness. Not only that, in Matthew chapter 21, we have the Palm Sunday prophecy of Zechariah. And here we have Jesus coming in and we read, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. That word for humility, humble, is the same word in Matthew chapter 5 that is translated meekness. So again, to fully understand the meekness that Jesus is talking about, we must simultaneously talk about meekness, gentleness, and humility. That word in the original language of the New Testament would have all of those connotations. Now, while we in our English language would separate meekness from humility, gentleness, In the original language of the New Testament, when Jesus says, blessed are the meek, he would have that fully orbed understanding of humility and gentleness. And as we think of it, I think it's helpful for us to understand that meekness is not synonymous with weakness. A meek person is not one who is a coward. A meek person is not one who is a pushover. A meek person is not one who will stand up for himself or herself. Jesus himself counters that prevailing image in our culture. When you think meekness is weakness, you listen to what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He did not hesitate to rebuke their unrighteousness when he says in Matthew chapter 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. 
what, what part of meek, mild, shy, push over Jesus do you hear in that rebuke? None of it. You see, a meek person isn't a person that avoids confrontation when that confrontation is injustice, sin, unrighteousness that is being pointed out. Jesus, meek Jesus, comes into the temple in Matthew chapter 21, and when he sees the sellers in the temple and they've turned the house of prayer into a place of thieves, what does he do? He rebukes him, and he turns over the tables. In John's gospel, the story of the purging of the temple is that Jesus has a whip with him. What part of cowardice is seen in Jesus turning over the tables. Again, meekness, gentleness, and humility doesn't mean that one is not willing to stand up for what is right and to point out what is wrong. So meekness is not weakness in Jesus' day, and it is not weakness in our day, but it is strength harnessed. Strength under the control of the Spirit of God. This is the role of meekness in the life of the believer. And I want you to see, secondly, the cultivation of meekness in the life of a believer. Not only the role of meekness, but the cultivation of meekness in the life of a believer. While our world doesn't often encourage meekness, Jesus calls us to be meek. He calls us to look this way. Notice in the Beatitudes that there's a, there's a slight shift in emphasis. We started with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn. These are not calls to become a person uh, who is more poverty of, of spirit. Uh, this is not a call to grieve over your sin. This is an announcement that God is with us in our poverty. God is with us in our grief. There's a slight shift of emphasis as we come to this section of the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are those who display mercy and peace and purity. Do you notice what Jesus is doing here? He is moving from an announcement to a call of what we are to look like as followers of Jesus. This is a way of Jesus saying that the followers who come after me are going to display characteristics that look different from the cultural norms of his day. And frankly, they look different than the cultural norms of our day. He bookends the Beatitudes with verses 10 and 11, where he says, Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are those who are reviled. So again, there's a book ending. This is more akin to the beginning of the, of, of the Beatitudes where he says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit and blessed are those who mourn. But they're embedded, sandwiched in between these bookends of the Beatitudes as a call for what we are to look like as followers of Christ. We are to look meek. We are to have a hunger and thirst for righteousness and mercy and purity of heart and, and to be peacemakers. Now this should not surprise us. That Jesus calls us to this meekness of life because, why? We're called to have the mind of Christ. Well, what does it mean, David, you might be asking, to actually exemplify this kind of lifestyle? Well, Paul helps us. There's probably no greater commentary than Matthew chapter 5, for Matthew chapter 5, than Philippians chapter 2. Notice what Jesus says. Do nothing from, notice what Paul says, excuse me. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. We're called in this section of Paul's letter to the church at Philippi to have the mind of Christ. And as we grow in our relationship with him through the means of grace that we know to be prayer, the word of God, the community of faith, as we are connected to him and we're dependent upon him through this, it changes the way we think. Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Stop being conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your what? Your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve his will for your life, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So as we grow in grace, it affects the way we think. And one of the ways it affects us is that we become people, not perfectly, but as we progress in our sanctification, it should attack the I, the me, and the mind in our soul. To where we become people that look like Christ, who desire to not perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but we desire and we pray for and we work for a desire to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Notice when Paul is writing to the churches at Galatia that he he mentions the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness. That word gentleness again comes back to the word of meekness. What Paul is writing about in Philippians is that humility which comes back to the word meekness. Oftentimes we talk about the fruits of the Spirit. It's it's the fruit of the Spirit. It's not a buffet line. It's not as if you've gone to to Finley or eaten at Nikki's West and you say, you know something, I don't feel like fried chicken today. I tell you, if you go to Nikki's West... You better be ready with your order. You, you better know what you want to order. That was one of our favorite places to eat from 2001 to 2004, and we've come back, and it, it's still going, but you better be ready to order, lest you be left behind in the line there. But you can go to a place like that and say, you know something, I don't want mashed potatoes today, but fried okra, give me two scoops of that. I don't want broccoli today, but I want rice. And we oftentimes take the fruit of the Spirit and they become fruits of the Spirit. And we make them into a buffet line where we say, love, no, but joy, I'll take that. Gentleness, no, but yes, faithfulness, I'll take that. But no, it's the fruit of the Spirit that when He is in us and we are abiding in Him, He transforms who we are and the fruit of that will be the meekness, humility, and gentleness. This is what he desires for your life to look like and my life to look like. And he is not content until we look more like him in this area. Now, how do we do that? Now, this is what's ironic about meekness, gentleness, humility. You know this. I know this. That any time we say, here's seven steps to living a gentle, meek, and humble life. We've betrayed the essence of what we're talking about. The more you try to be humble, the further you are from humility. The more you talk about your humility, the more that you are living out a sense of pride in your humility. I am so proud of how humble I am. 
I mean, we see this. This is, this is actors and actresses. This is the season in which they, they dress up and they have red carpets and all of uh, the attention of the paparazzi is, is set upon that elite group of Hollywood actors and actresses at the Golden Globes and the Emmys and the Oscars. And uh, one after another, you will hear them uh, receive an award and stand up before their peers and they will say something like this, I am so humbled by this honor. I never could imagine this in a million years happening. I'm so undeserving. All of my peers who were nominated there, you're so much more worthy of this. They, they do all of that while they're reaching in their pocket, pulling out their prepared acceptance speech. And 99 out of 100 times, I'm sure there, there's one I'm not saying there's never been a time where there's been authenticity in that room, but there's actresses and actresses, and even in their speech, they're they're performing. And and the language that is acceptable is a language of false humility in our culture. And you understand, and I understand, that is not what Jesus is talking about here. Meekness, humility, gentleness, they're, they're not products of how many times you say you're humbled by what something you thought you deserved in the first place to receive. Humility isn't something we talk ourselves into. Humility isn't something that we say, I'm today going to grit my teeth and be more humble. We end up further away in that pursuit. So humility has to be out of the overflow of an authentic, growing relationship with God. And the more time we spend with him, the more we look like his son. And if his son is the picture of meekness and we're being conformed more and more into his image, one of the things that eventually is going to be crucified in us is our pride. Not perfectly this side of heaven, but he desires to root that out to where humility is birthed in the hard, concrete heart of our soul. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was a summer missionary in Wells. Spent three months the summer between my sophomore year and my junior year as a Baptist Student Union summer missionary. And it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful summer. I proposed to Danielle two days before I got on a plane and was gone for three months, which I would say was a good strategy because by the time I got back home, the whole wedding had been planned. (laughs) I didn't have to to look for colors of flowers or china. They didn't care what I thought, and I wasn't there, and it was all done. Good advice to any person thinking to propose is a good strategy just to get out of the country for three months. Now, I'll tell you, when I was in Wells, one of the things that we, I, I lived and worked out of this college camp that had students come in from all over Wells for week-long camps. Also, we did evangelism in the community. The community where I lived for three months was Bala. Bala is one of these small Welsh fishing villages that still has as a source of pride that they are, they are Welsh speakers. So everyone's bilingual by the age of four, the majority of the community is, but their, their language of commerce, their language in the schools is, is still in Welsh. 
So when we would go out to do evangelism, we would start with the Welsh that we were learning every morning. So I still remember David Dewey, Dwayne Dusky Kumrai, Dwayne Gwithio in Kalagobala. I, I, I would start with that when I would knock on a door, which means my name is David. I'm working at the college here in Bala, and I'm learning Welsh. And they would grin from ear to ear, so excited that I could speak their language. And then they would start into Welsh, and I would just look at them with this quizzical look and say, I'm sorry, that's all I have right there. I don't, I don't know anything else, but, you know, it's a good start. It was interesting when I, when I landed back home after spending three months in Wales, my brothers were there at the airport, and they, they, you know, what brothers would do, you know, kind of pick on each other. It's not a whole lot of love lost right there. But they started looking at me with this weird look and said, you sound strange. And then Danielle was there, and the time that we began to spend, the days after, the weeks after, she said, you just sound different. Well, obviously, if you spend three months in a Welsh-speaking, you know, British inflection, it's going to rub off on you. It rubbed off on my deep Mississippi drawl, and it was, it was painful and comical for people to listen to. But it wasn't something I was trying to do. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't something I was mimicking. It's just a principle that the people you spend time with, they rub off on you. That the, the things that you value are oftentimes things that your closest family members or friends value. The phrases that you repeat are oftentimes phrases and stories that are embedded in your family, embedded in your close friends. And the, the way that you speak and the rhythms of your conversation are oftentimes embedded in those that are closest to you. And so I had become more like them, and there was this meshing of who I was, and the result of it was a change in the way I talked, at least for a little while. I say that to say, the more we spend in prayer and in the Word and in the community of faith, the more that God shapes us and we look different and we sound different to an unbelieving world. And meekness is a characteristic that is so, so undervalued in our culture. Humility and gentleness is so undervalued in our culture that when we see someone with that authentic humility, it draws us to them. There is something that we say, there is something different about it. We say words like authenticity. We say, we say words like humility. It, there's something that pulls us into them because they're so different. How, how do we notice this? Well, you know in the workplace, the, those individuals who just ruthlessly eliminate pretense, who are just so, we say, confident in their own skin. Not prideful, but they're not trying to improve. You know, the, the endless posturing that can occur in the workplace, 
the endless posturing that can occur in the home or in our world. A person who is content and confident in Christ doesn't feel the need to constantly pretend, not constantly perform, not constantly put before people, look at me, I am the smartest. Look at me, I am so important. Look at me, I am so gifted. I love the way C.S. Lewis said this. He said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. So it isn't denying gifts responsibilities, but rather it's thinking of yourself less. You hear what Lewis is doing there? Humility is not thinking less of yourself. All of us have gifts, responsibilities, and we're called to use those, but rather humility is thinking of yourself less. Think think in our history. Who are the leaders that we continue to hold up to this place of emulation? Who are the leaders that we understand were not perfect, but there is something that transcends their leadership that we still learn from even today? It's interesting when you go back. I had this goal probably five years ago that I was going to read a biography of all of our presidents, and um, I amazingly failed at that goal. You know, maybe it's a lifelong goal. But it got me through Lincoln. And one of the things in reading Abraham Lincoln's uh, a biography of Lincoln and, and is, is the absolute admiration that he received based upon the very thing that I'm talking about here. In Lincoln's life, there's a book called Lincoln Observed. And it was, it was written by an embedded military journalist during the Civil War who, whose name was Noah Brooks. And Noah Brooks followed Lincoln at the times of his Gettysburg Address and the times that he was before and he was owned, quote-unquote. But he also had these intimate looks at those private moments of Lincoln's life to be able to get the the full-orbed understanding of, of who is this man. And notice what he says, this contemporary of Lincoln. All persons agree that the most marked characteristic of President Lincoln's manners was his simplicity and artlessness. This immediately impressed itself upon the observation of those who met him for the first time, and each successive interview deepened the impression. People seemed to delight to find in the ruler of the free nation that he was free from pretense and pomp, that he mingled with a certain simple dignity which never forsook him. Even as the president of the United States, he shrank from assuming any of the honors or even the titles of that position. After years of intimate acquaintance with President Lincoln, I cannot now recall a single instance in which he spoke of himself as president or used that title for himself except when acting in an official capacity. There is something about that valuation that maybe is hagiographic in many ways, and maybe it's exalting Lincoln in many ways, but there's something that is true, and you've seen that in leaders that you admire. You see that in the workplace of those that you want to be like, a a self-confidence 
that doesn't have to always parade itself before everyone. What is that? Well, there's a meekness, gentleness, humility. So I want you to see the role of meekness in the life of the believer. I want you to see the cultivation of meekness in the life of a believer. And finally this morning, I want you to see the reward. The reward for meekness in the future of a believer. Notice the promise that is attached here to this beatitude. Blessed are the meek for what? They shall inherit the earth. This promise connects us. It connects us to what has come before in the Old Testament, and it connects us to what is going to come after in the book of Revelation. So in many ways, this promise is a bridge between Genesis and Revelation. What do I mean by that? Well, God comes to Abram. He says, leave your land, go to the land that I'm going to show you, and I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing to all the nations, and to understand the promises of God to Abraham and Sarah. There are promises of lineage, and there are promises of what? Land. There is no greater theme in the Old Testament that unlocks the meaning of what God is doing with his people than the theme of land. Bringing them out of foreign captivity in Egypt to the land that he promised them in Genesis chapter 12. They get to the promised land after wandering and they, they, they ultimately sin and they're exiled out of the land. And when they're exiles in another land, they, they long to be back in the land. And then when you come to Jesus' day... You have Israel and you have these people that are living all across that Greco-Roman world that long to come back to the land. And the land was occupied by Roman occupation. And there were Jewish sects, S-E-C-T-S, called the Zealots, who said that we're going to get the land again. And the way we're going to get the land is by military might. We're going to overthrow Roman occupation And we're going to bring ourselves. The Messiah is going to lead us. And this will be our land once and for all. And Jesus says, blessed are the meek. For they shall inherit the earth. That the receiving of the land isn't something that we do in our might and in our strength. In our power. But rather it is only something that we can receive as a gift from our Father. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. What does that mean? Well, there's continuity and there's discontinuity. The continuity is is that we're still, as children of Abraham, called to inherit the land. What will that land look like? Well, John peels back the throne of where we are headed. And in Revelation 21, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride ordained for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you know our permanent address, our permanent address is not a heaven in the sky in the great by and by, but
But our permanent address is a renewed and a restored heaven and earth, a a new Jerusalem. This is our permanent address. This is where we are headed to, a, a time that we as followers of Christ who are being shaped into his image, an image of, of gentleness and meekness and humility, that, that, that is, those are signs that we look like our Father. You know this, don't you? That you resemble your parents. It's just a part of it. You get to a certain season of life. I'm there where I look in the mirror and I see, I see my dad now. I see my mom. I see how this comes in. Why? Because there's that genetic connection to my parents and I look like them and I am a part of them. And so it is that we are called to show people the family resemblance. We are called to show people where we are come from and where we are headed. And as we do that, one of the characteristics that is so countercultural in our society is that we will show them the family resemblance of meekness, gentleness, and humility. And it is a sign that we, well, we are his. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let us pray. It is in this moment, God, that we are reminded that it is only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we are your children. That it is only by receiving the gift of salvation that you begin to do this work of character transformation. And so we become men and women who look different than the society around us. The society around us says that the prize goes to the brashest, to the boldest, to the self-promoters and the self-important. But you remind us that there is a quiet strength and confidence that comes in our knowledge of whose we are. We are yours, your children, bought with a price. So we thank you for our heritage in you. We thank you that you're continuing to conform us more and more into the characteristics of a follower of Christ, that that your personality, your attributes you desire for us to reflect. None of us in this room model meekness, perfectly, humility, perfectly, gentleness, perfectly. We need your spirit to forgive us where we fail you, to refine us more and more into your image. Help us see the absolute importance of these characteristics that were so embedded in you, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in your earthly life. And may we with each passing day, begin to show people the the family resemblance so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. May that be our prayer. May that be our desire. It's in your name we pray. Amen.